Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. There was no shortage of excitement in the literary world when it was announced that Lynn Steger-Strong, author of the novel Want, was coming out with a new domestic novel of family dramas. In her latest, Flight, out today with Mariner Books, siblings Henry, Martin, and Kate are spending their first Christmas without their mother. Stowed away with their partners and children in a house in upstate New York, the siblings come to terms with the absence of their mother and also with the sense that without her, there may be little to tie them together. In the course of a few days, old tensions and new resentments build to a boil. The inheritance of a Florida home reveals economic strains and uncomfortable revelations about privilege and the value of work. Captured with a wandering narrative eye that looks intimately at the lives and troubles of very different adult children, Flight builds its tensions both within the claustrophobic walls of the home where the family has decamped for Christmas, but also in the parallel drama of Quinn, a single mother and recovering addict who struggles to raise her beloved daughter Maddie with the constant fear that Child Protective Services may judge her incapable of caring for her daughter. As family and community dramas unfurl, we're treated to a narrative imagination that delves into the power of art at the end of the age of humans, the privileges seen and unseen that a mostly white family enjoys without having earned them, the impossible demands of capitalism, the gendering of work and family responsibilities, and so much more. 
with the gorgeous prose and care for the details of human life that are the feature of all her work, Lynn Steger Strong asks difficult questions of her readers while immersing us in the lives of a family to which we feel increasingly attached. Flight is a novel for an American moment in which community can feel both impossible and unbearable. Lynn's previous novel, Want, which was one of my favorite novels of the last decade, has been called a defining novel of our age. Flight surely follows on in this tradition. Lynn has taught at Columbia University, and she is currently visiting professor of English at Bates College, the greatest of all the small colleges. Welcome to the show, Lynn Steger Strong. Thank you, Chris. I love I love the Bates shout out in the end. Um, <laughs> and and I really don't actually have language for what a lovely intro that was. But thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Uh, I'm so thrilled you're here. This is such a wonderful follow up to want. And in, in that last novel, you had this incredibly intense first person narration and flight by contrast is this roving third person that lives mostly within a group of siblings and their partners dipping out of that family to watch a young single mother and her daughter. Why did you want to explore this new narrative perspective? I mean, I think that the idea of, of form and what form can do and what form, lim how form limits you and then how it opens you up is one of the most exciting things about diving into any project for me. And I think with Want, I'd spent... I'd spent so much time avoiding the first person, if only because I was so worried I would just let the narrator think the whole time. And then I finally sort of, and I spent all this time thinking about the third, and then I finally was just like, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> and I and I sort of dove into the first. Interestingly, I sort of dove into the first after having spent three years on a sort of polyphonic novel that never saw the light of day. Um and 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 I maybe I felt like a good enough writer in control enough of what I was doing on the page to do the first person and still sort of create movement and tension, et cetera. Um, but then I sort of I started to think of the first person as this kind of trap, hmm. um, which which I think is really useful in some ways but but my sort of narrative interests were were ready to break free um and so i think you know one thing about the third and the roving third that i had failed to get hold of in the novel that didn't sell is i think it's really important that you establish very clear constraints before you start a project um and so this is really long winded and I'm sorry, but the trap that I established, you know, the sort of the sort of constraint or trap that I established in order to feel like, OK, I can do this roving third was to sort of situate them within the house and within this very clear mm. period of time. Um, so whereas want was you're trapped with the first, but now you just have to move forward. Flight was you can move wherever you want with the points of view, but you're sort of stuck in this three days single house um and then with quinn and maddie obviously on the outskirts it almost could be an, an assignment for one of your writing classes trap a family in a house in upstate new york and and watch what happens yeah yeah no i mean i think it's you know i'm 
one of the things that I tell students is think of the relationship, a relationship that's interesting to you or exciting to you. And then think about a space where that relationship has a flair, um, a word I just sort of, you know, sort of thinking of my friend who has rheumatoid arthritis and we talk about flares a lot, but like, you know, a mother and a daughter put them in a kitchen, you know, like that's very gendered, but you know, like there's certain, make a certain sort of group of people go try on jeans, you know, like there's just, <laughs> there's, there are these spaces where depending on the relationship, there could be no tension at all, but you find the right space and everything sort of bubbles to the surface. Mm, I, I really like that. The matriarch of this family clan, Helen, was a larger than life figure for the siblings and their partners. They had complicated feelings about her, but she was the glue that very purposefully kept them together. Helen is largely a figure of goodness and community. We don't see too many contemporary novels with excellent mothers. <laughs> um, what was attractive about having the absence of Helen as the tap tacit core of the novel? You know, I, I, I will enter a sort of personal space here and then I'll leave it as quickly as possible, which is to say um, I lost someone I love so much <laughs> about a year ago. And actually she was the person who, who told me, you know, want, want had this sort of hard life. And part of it was at some point an agent was like, this is bad. I think you should write another book. And my friend Zipporah said to me, you know, Lynn, um, and her husband is a, maybe this, maybe you could, maybe this isn't relevant, but her husband is a filmmaker whom I admire a lot, Fred Wiseman, who's sort of always done <laughs> his own thing. And, and Zipporah said to me, you know, Lynn, is it the thing that you want to make? And I said, yes, it is the thing that I want to make. And she said that you make it. Hmm. And I said, okay, I will. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then she died and, and she was 92 and she had a pretty extraordinary life. So it didn't, so it, it was, it was this complicated loss. And the thing that was so interesting to me, I had never lost anyone I had loved so much. And it was really sad but it was also everything she gave me still lives inside of me mm -hmm. um and i think what i became really interested in with flight is you have helen but then you have the in-law daughters who are sort of grappling with this idea of what is the difference between loss and lack and i think in sort of some of my previous work the mother has represented a lack, even mm, while she's mm. been present, just sort of mother figures have been maybe more complicated and more difficult. And in that vein, the daughters have tried to navigate what it is to try to redefine mother on their own terms. Um, I think what's different about this book is that Helen has defined mother in a pretty extraordinary way. Um, but now the children are trying to sort of navigate what, and this is this is all just stolen from Wolf, right? But like what the presence of her absence is mm. and how it's different, but also similar to her presence. And then by comparison, right, Tess and Alice, who are the people whose mothers have maybe functioned more as lax, are trying to make sense of navigating both those things, right? They're trying to make sense of navigating the loss of Helen, but also to continue to navigate their mothers who, who feel like lax. 
Oh my goodness, I didn't get it in until now, but this is is so much in conversation with to the lighthouse. Boy, I I blew it as a <laughs> as an English professor. It's such a wonderful contemporary conversation that you're having with Wolf. Can, could you talk more about that and 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 try and ignore how dumb I am in missing that? <laughs> No, I mean, I don't, I don't, there's no, you know, that feels sort of hubristic. Like I can't compare. I mean, there is no one. (laughs) I, when I was in college, I refused to be an English major because books, I, I thought that if I went to class and specifically if anyone said anything negative about Virginia Woolf, I would cry or I would throw something and I would, I'd already been like the university had already tried to kick me out a couple of times. So I was like, I just have to be a political science major. Um, And then actually I read to the lighthouse after reading Mrs. Dalloway, I read to the lighthouse and the waves in like the same week. And of course you can't read to the lighthouse and the waves in a week. Right. Because they're so rich. And I was like, I need help. Right. Mm -hmm. So I basically, I became an English major my junior year because I wanted someone to help me read to the lighthouse and the waves. And then like proceeded to take seven classes a semester because I was like, Oh wait, like I did still cry sometimes, but I never threw anything. And it's such restraint. It was, thank you. I have, I, but, uh, anyway, but I, yeah, I mean, which is just to say, like, I can't, the level to which I feel like I carry to the Lighthouse and Mrs. Dalloway, especially around in my body, is hard to overstate. And mm. I think, I do think specifically, sort of the way that she moved, even thinking about those two books, like, I can't. I can't tell you which one I like more, which all by itself is a kind of extraordinary accomplishment. But but in part, I think it's because they're just two s- such different formal projects, even mm-hmm. as the interests remain largely the same, right? Um, and I do think, you know, she robes in both books, but... but <sighs> Again, Chris, I don't know if I have language for Wolf because I, she's here. She's here in my office. I have a stuffed wolf that the children <laughs> recently beat up a little bit. But I, I think the thing, I think the thing about Wolf that I was trying to do in flight, or the thing about the lighthouse that I was interested in flight, is what are the sort of larger human organisms or investments that live outside of the individual self, right? Mm-hmm. So like. Mm-hmm. Even even in the opening, there's an opening group of chapters that sort of establish everybody coming to the party, but then there's an opening section where you just come to the house. And very late in the book, I realized that the chapter had opened naming two of the characters, but I was like, no, no, it's it's more than any single character. And so instead there are two sentences that sort of describe the house and then the characters come after. And it was this process of sort of de-emphasizing the individual in order hopefully to have the reader be engaged with these people on the level of the group instead of on the Mm -hmm. level of the individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think again, like syntactically, Wolf does that to you into the lighthouse, you Mm -hmm. know, the way that she emphasizes certain things and then de-emphasizes certain things, the way that sort of major events happen parenthetically, right? Like that Mm -hmm. sort of way that she teaches your brain to engage with this group was something I was, I was sort of endlessly invested in, in this book. 
Well, the investment now that I've discovered it for myself latently um, has, you know, brought all kinds of new questions to mind. I'll try and, you know, touch on them as as we go. But I'm also interested in how you use very, I think, cleverly the absent mother as an echo that we trace in in other forms. So Quinn's mother, who's not dead, um, but absent, a lack to use your, your, your words. <laughs> and then Quinn's own anxieties that she will fail her daughter and leave her motherless. Um, but also Alice, who's unable to have her own children and is therefore unmothered despite her best efforts. <laughs> you clearly wanted to play with that powerful and intractable idea of motherhood and it's and in all of its complications. So take me through a little bit of that echoing that you're doing there with Quinn and with Alice. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I'm kind of endlessly interested in fiction being able to do is elasticizing our relationships to words and terms that feel firm and settled. Right. So like, and, and obviously, I'm interested in the word mother and also i think in this case i'm interested just in sort of what it is to inhabit the female body not least sort of alice inhabiting this female body that she wanted to inhabit that word of mother but but maybe is never going to but but that also caretaking is a is a complicated and layered enterprise that we can do in all sorts of different ways um so i mean there's there's a moment early in the quinn and maddie sections where they they go to the grocery store and they run into someone who's going to have 27 people over for dinner um <laughs> and quinn and and maddie the daughter is is really jealous and quinn is like oh that sounds awful mm. and i'm sort of and doesn't quinn maddie say um are, are we orphans? Yes, yes, she asks. Yeah, which is, which I think, you know, is, is such a great, I mean, kids are so useful, right, in their, like, odd wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. But, but I think, yeah, I think, I think there's so many, so much of what I'm interested in as a writer comes from the collision, from colliding two ideas in order to hopefully create like a new or different tension or energy from that collision, right? Which is to say that, like, in my belly, I feel that Quinn is a deeply good mom. Mm -hmm. But Quinn's relationship to the word mom is so informed by a sort of world that looks at her and says she's doing a bad job, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's one way you, where you write a book where you just tell Quinn's story, and that's a different type of book. But I was interested, I mean, first it's worth thinking about, right? Like Quinn has struggled with substances in the past. I vehemently reject the idea that that means that she's a bad mom. So one of the things I do throughout the book is that Quinn is sober throughout the entire, mostly the whole, she has a beer at one point, but Quinn is sober throughout the whole book. And the people in the house who are upper middle class and white and incredibly privileged are getting progressively drunker every single mm -hmm. night mm -hmm. and they're parenting their children. Right. And they're in charge of their children and their children are, are fine. Um, but I think I was interested in the ways that like, because they're of a certain class and because they're, they're drinking like a holiday whiskey punch instead of heroin, they're considered more responsible parents. Obviously heroin and whiskey punches are different. Um, but I'm interested in sort of holding those two things up against one another and saying, okay, but both of these people love their children. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah. And and the the way in which you kind of bring out those differentials so that you can you can make a mistake if you are in this sort of privileged class and have, you know, had these kind of structures of, of privilege around you and not have child protective services show up at your door and, and take away your child. But Quinn lives with this sort of vibrating anxiety that any any wrong move and, and that's the end for her, no matter how much she may love Maddie and how much she may invest in her. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, again, like parental anxiety is endlessly interesting to me. And if you're of a certain group and, and I am a part of this group, a lot of your anxiety is dismissed in this way that is both maddening, but a relief. Right. But Quinn inhabits an anxiety that in some ways is it's similar in tenor and volume to Tess's anxiety. And yet, cause, and yet Tess's anxiety is mostly without reason and Quinn's is wholly reasonable, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and again, I think I was sort of interested in the ways we can inhabit this idea of parental anxiety, but with much different external pressures and much different actual consequences, depending on the type of mother that we are or the type of person that we were prior to becoming a mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you have you read um, Jasmine Chan's School for Good Mothers? I have. Yes, I have. Because uh, I feel like that's a that's a book that kind of deals with that in in such e- extraordinary terms. And there's there's some interesting overlay, I think, in in Quinn and 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 the way that certain kinds of mothers are are treated with a with a surveilling eye in in Chan's novel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that I mean, not to be too. I don't, I don't really believe in spoilers, but you know, that, that sort of idea of that like single mistake or moment, which again, we make all of the time as parents, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh my like, God. Yeah. Like, like parents, parents, you know, there, there are so many moments where you're like, Oh, ooh, ah, yeah, right. And then it's fine until there's that single moment where it's not. Um, and who has sort of access to the ability to have those close calls and who lives in constant terror of those close calls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So real estate anxiety to name another (laughs) anxiety has a, has a wonderful history in literature. So often the inheritance of a house is the catalyst for family dramas of every sort houses are characters as much as people think Howard's End, Mansfield Park, and then more recently, Ramon Alam's marvelous Leave the World Behind, where the fight over rental properties is still going on, even at the end of the world. (laughs) You've got a familial house that's in dispute, but you also set the novel in uh, Henry and Alice's upstate New York home, where its rooms are the settings for dramas. Were you thinking about this literary history, and now I'm kind of flagging for myself, uh, to the lighthouse for sure and the importance of that of that house but why are you interested in houses as characters i mean as you say it's it's just an it's an incredibly useful narrative tool and i will say maybe the way that i think first of all i'm always interested in literary history right like you you and i are both teachers and i think that that 
me to me books at their best are just one long conversation and the idea mm. that we're ever writing something new is sort of ridiculous um <laughs> and so instead i sort of want to think about the things that i love most right the parts of books that i love most and then again think about how i might just in a little bit elasticize them right and so i think the house absolutely and also the thing that i would add to the house as a character is just i'm from florida my husband's from florida um florida is a place that i love deeply and also a place that i hate and feel complicated things mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. and also a place that i'm really just worried for um and so i think and and during covid through a sort of complicated assortment of events we were we were actually in florida for a good amount of the time that i was working on this book um and so i, I think similar to what we were talking about, about loss, I think one of the things that I was thinking about with this specific real estate, as opposed to real estate in other novels, is because it's real estate located in Florida, there is this argument over whether who gets to keep it or how much it's worth has a sort of tinge of absurdity to it, because whether or not that property will be worth anything or exist at all, um, in the next, you know, 20, 50 years is really up for debate. Um, and so I think that that was the sort of added layer that I wanted to put there. And I think with that, I wanted to add the sort of, or I, I don't know, again, I think, I think this might exist, but, but one of the characters, Kate, just wants to, she wants to live there. Right. And, 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 and I think the idea of, Grieving or losing or lacking a place became a very present and important aspect of this Mm -hmm. novel for Mm -hmm. me when we were in Florida, because I love Florida so much. And I got to show my kids these parts of Florida and my husband got to show our kids these parts of Florida that are so sort of elemental to our forming, Mm. but neither of us could ever raise our kids there. Mm. Um, And so it was this sort of- Oh, that's so painful. Yeah, I mean, and it's okay, you know, like, it's a choice, right? Like, we don't, we, we, the, we grew up in like a small beach town that is no longer that place, you know? Um, And so it's, it's fine. And actually, it's, 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 it's fine, but it is, it is a loss, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a walking around in the world with a thing that you love that you don't have anymore, and that you can't, give to your children in the same way. And that is completely fine. Um, But it is a part of being human that I was interested in exploring in this book. There are a lot of writers who have very complicated love-hate relationships with Florida, (laughs) including my beloved colleague, uh, Eleanor Henderson. But uh, it, it is interesting that Florida looms large. And there's that moment when they're, when Tess is sort of like haggling over like what it will mean for them monetarily to sell it now versus later. And she says, well, you know, flood insurance may make it you know not not as valuable later and it's Mm -hmm. that it's an aside for her and yet it should be everything that should be the only thing that's meaningful there and i wonder about you know climate change as an aside and then also as a centrality to this novel for you yeah i mean it's interesting because you start to talk they start to talk about how they're going to talk about your novel and they sort of they sent me an email so there was some email at some point where it was like is this a climate change novel and i was like well no i mean i mean 
no in the sense of like, I'm not a scientist, you know, but, but, but yes, in the sense of like, we are living, right? Like it is a novel, I hope about living right now and trying to raise children right now. And so climate informs that, right? Like I was, I was telling someone this story the other day, but when my daughter was, was about to be born, she's 10 now, but when she was about to be born, we, we, of maybe not of course, but we were sort of, especially my husband are like sort of obsessive composters. And, um, but the compost place at the farmer's market had been closed. Anyways, I found myself, I, so we, we kept all of our compost in our freezer in these like black bodega bags. And I was like nine and a half months pregnant on the subway with three massive black bodega bags filled with <laughs> compost that were melting at oh, my feet. Oh, God. <laughs> How was the was smell? Like, it was horrible. People were like moving away from me. Like I looked <laughs> great. I was so pregnant. Like, and I, I was sweating. The bags were sweating. And I was, and there was this part of me that was like, I am being a good mother. You know, like I am prepared. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was so ridiculous, right? Because like those three compost bags are not going to fix what has been broken at this point. Mm. But, but it, but it felt so important to me that day to just, to just do this, you know? And I feel like in so far as that moment and like the other 3000 moments I've experienced since with regard to raising children in this particular moment, just again, like sort of lives inside of me. And I, I grapple with and even that idea that you say of like an aside, right? It's like, there's a moment in the book where the one person who's most interested in climate says something about, you know, like all of them with their burning world jokes, right? Like, Mm. I am also one of those people, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's, it's one of those things where climate kind of struggles to make itself seen and known to the characters in this novel in the same way that it makes itself seen and known to me in my daily life, which is to say there's this undercurrent of terror, but also this overwhelming sense of ineffectuality. And those two things just kind of butt heads in the background as people argue over like real estate, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And thinking about these very like short term, you know, we'll have this like economic bump or we'll be able to see ourselves through this difficult um, moment because of selling this house versus, you know, what are we seeing ourselves through to what's coming on the other end of that? And I've been having these conversations more and more with novelists who it is it's less that they set out to write a a climate novel and more that, as you say, um, climate is both the sort of background and foreground of everything we do now. Yeah, yeah. No, and I don't I don't you know, it's I think another thing that that I'm really interested in as a writer is just like it's not my job to make arguments. You know, I I just I, I want I want to ask people to look at things and ask questions about things and, and consider these things. And I do think that odd way, which again, is just, it feels deeply human, right? It feels, Mm -hmm. it feels deeply human to be worried about what are we going to pack for lunch and how are you doing in school? And Oh my God, tonight's Halloween. And how are we going to organize all of that? You know, like it feels that is so much of what it is to be a parent that that sort of larger picture stuff 
you just don't know where to start. And that's, that's a real thing. I, I still think that we should try, like, and I guess the difference between me and these characters is maybe I'm more engaged with, with trying to figure out what else to do, not to give myself any credit, but like, you know, whatever. But like, I do think that that question of the chasm between the dailiness of life and the magnitude of what is in front of us is a question I'm interested in sort of sitting inside of and asking the reader to consider. Mm -hmm. There's a fundamental tension amongst the siblings and their partners around what constitutes meaningful work. Mm -hmm. Tess has a career that makes plenty of money, but she seems often deeply dissatisfied with her life and always distracted from the lives mm -hmm. going on around her. Henry, by contrast, spends his time making replicas of birds. There are so many questions wrapped up in this duality, the power of capitalism to capture our every waking moment, the privileges required to spend a life making art, and the necessity to support those without such privileges. Where does the idea of making a meaningful life with a career, with art, um, fit into this web of dramas that you've built in flight? You know, the, whole, the, the sort of origins of the book were the igloo and the birds. Um, oh, so fascinating. For those who haven't read the book, um, there's one character uh, who is maybe the least respected of the grown-ups um, named Josh, who is building an igloo for the children. And then there's Henry, who is the artist, who's building a flock of birds in the barn as an art installation, but for whom and to what ends is sort of an open question. Mm. Um, and so for me, it really was, you know, on its face and, and having met me or talked to me, I would, I would argue that I am, there's something about the igloo that I would, I would take a lot of issue with if, or perhaps it has happened that my brother-in-law has built an igloo, but, but this idea, this <laughs> no idea one can that, say, <laughs> no, <laughs> he can't. Um, the, the, you know, the idea that a group of people are brought together and the husband, again, sort of, I think it, it all has to work on the level of just these people, right? Which is to say that like a group of people are brought together and there's a certain type of husband. It's important to note that this husband also has an obscene amount of inherited wealth, but a certain type of husband may pretend under the auspices of doing something fun for the children, do something that feels sort of ridiculous and absurd. And maybe even the children won't like it very much <laughs> but but and and because he's doing this maybe he will not be doing the thing of like caring for the children or, or do making food etc um but, and but i think one of the reasons sometimes actions like that bother me so much is because i do the exact same thing which is to say there are plenty of times when my children need food or, or care and I am sort of trapped in my office trying to make things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the origins of the novel was me sort of saying, okay, what's the difference? You know, like the world is burning. There are so many more important and necessary things to be doing. What is the difference between art and that igloo? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so the book sort of started there and then the characters and everything. I mean, I mean, the book started with that and then it started with Tess being the person who is worriest of both, right? Because Tess is, Tess is the productive lawyer and she's, she says something early where she's like, you know, if, if I stop being productive, even for a second, I will die, you know? Um, And so she is the one that sort of looks at the birds and looks at the igloos and is like, is there any value in either? And again, the book spends some time trying to, trying to poke at that question more and more. There's an important secondary question about Henry's art that connects to our conversation about climate, and that is mm-hmm. that he he makes replicas of birds as a way of preserving a species he sees as possibly going out of existence. I am I I just am about to put out an interview with Lydia Millet, who whose recent book Dinosaurs um, also has a kind of figuration of birds as a a marvelous example of a world that may not exist um, before too long. And I'm wondering how you feel like, you know, that on the one hand, Henry's art feels kind of like feckless and besides the point um, Mm -hmm. in terms of the birds themselves and their existence. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, there is this need for art to preserve things that are gone. I can think of going to European art museums and seeing paintings of dodos and other extinct animals and finding it extraordinary and sad, but also important that those things exist. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think again, and we can we can sort of we could spend the whole day maybe just nosing around in different ways to define and think about what art is. But I think I think one of the things that it can be is it's it's experiential, right? Like especially visual art. That's my favorite thing about visual art. It is it is so sort of viscerally and physically at its best experiential. And so this idea, and, and maybe another thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is how can art hold aspects of life inside of it that live outside of space and time? Like that's mm-hmm. sort of sort of something I've got on a post-it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about those two things and then thinking about the extraordinary losses that we are and will continue to watch happen over the course of our lifetimes, right? It's both, art is both, almost comically ineffectual, but also actually relatively well primed for that, right? In Mm -hmm. terms Mm -hmm. of what can it hold? What can it capture? What experiences can it offer that will no longer be available to us in our everyday lives? Mm -hmm. Without giving away the rising tension of the last quarter of the novel, I will say that this is a story of finding community within a family and also in the families we make of our neighbors and friends. We are in a distinctly American moment in which communities feel sealed off and built around the rejection of others. Did you want the communitarian aspect of the novel to speak in some way to our failure as a country to understand broader communities? (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, yes. Uh, next question. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I mean, you know, it was <laughs> it's it's I talked I talked to Ian Lee a few weeks ago upon the publication of her incredible novel and and one of the things we talked a lot about was how both of us sometimes are called 
bleak as writers. And I think I, there was a point sometime in 2020 where I said to a friend, you know, I have cycled through every other emotion. So the only thing I've got left is to try to find my way to hope. Um, and, and I think I, I, I had this idea that the end of this book would, and, and like, I can't even say this word without like apologizing and also saying like, please read the book, even though this might make you cringe, but like, um, that the end of the book would involve a sort of moment of communal grace. Hmm. And that was not something I was sure I believed in when I wrote this book. And so I just kept having to try again and try. And I just kept sort of saying, like, I knew the, I knew the ending image of the book almost before the book. Like I've, I've carried that image around for like a few years, probably three or four years at this point. Um, But I thought it was corny. And I was like, but I have to, but just like, prove it, prove it, prove it. And I would just go back into the book and go back into the book and say, prove it, which is to say, like, it's important to me. It's important to me with, with every book that I write to be, to be writing into spaces that feel almost impossible to imagine and then try to imagine them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I don't know. I don't know how good we are, or I don't know how we get to the other side of of all the anger and the hatred and all of these things right now. But it feels like I'm trying to find the words that I actually believe in because I don't want to say the other words. Mm -hmm. Um, It feels like it starts right. So this book is mostly these people fighting with one another right which which feels like a useful place to start which is to say we've we've got it for like we've got to get our own house in order right like it's hard it's hard to love and see and care for the people right in front of us much less our neighbors much less the people in a red state you know what i mean like that's it's 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 hard enough to do that so so it was important to me that that first i show how hard it is for just us to love the people we're contractually obligated to love Mm -hmm. and then to just press that one step further and say, and, 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 and maybe, but, but maybe though we can still do it. And maybe though in finding ways to do it, we can find ways to cast out a little bit further and then maybe we can cast out a little bit further. And I, and I do think that like, for, for the same reason that like books are most interesting me, like m- the more granular aspects of life are the most interesting to me as a novelist. I do think it's within the granularity that we find the overlaps and we find the opportunities to care for one another. And I, I do still want very much to believe that those small moments of care among very different humans are possible. Mm-hmm. Um and this was sort of me trying to convince myself of that by making a lot of petty, uncomfortable tensions early and then and believing in them and then trying to thread through to to that sort of small moment of grace at the end. I feel like maybe in the in the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s, hope or the idea of a, a, a moment of grace might have been a dirty words for for literature. <laughs> but I, I feel like that's not not the case now, and it feels urgent, and it and it feels almost 
like we need to lean on art for for those very things i don't know if that if you feel the same yeah no i do i i do you know i mean another again like i feel like you start to talk about this stuff and it's like where do books come from who knows and and again i i like to me helen is helen in the book but but one of the things that I think the book is about, and this is very much standing on the shoulders of want was if want was about how systems are broken, right? Then then flight is very much me sitting there and saying, okay, sure. <laughs> but you know, like there is no ritual, there is no authority, there is no church, there is no space to go and have somebody tell you this might not even be true, but for this next hour, let's all come together and say that everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. Um and for me in my life, who is who is very seldom believed in very many things, the places where I have experienced that have been art, you know. And I think even, you know, it's it, it's been books, but but books, and it continues to be books. But I think also just like the past probably six or seven years, I've made a real practice of of just going to see as much visual art as possible. And I often see that visual art with with a very good friend of mine. And that idea of a sort of, of a shared moment of grace and then a shared space of conversation and a shared space of reverence has been a real boon mm. to, to me as a human and, and also to me and what I make. I love that. I, I, I would venture to guess that you also believe in running. Um, <laughs> you, you, you recently wrote an amazing essay on your lifetime relationship with running. It's um, a short essay about learning to love running without having to win something. But mm-hmm. it's also a story of complex relationships to mothers. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your relationship to running. And am I wrong in thinking of this essay as a kind of a coda to flight? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, how did I told you, like, we can't, I don't know where to start with running. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I find, I find it, I love, I love running. I've been running since I was, since I was 12 or 13, um, and I think the, the incredible thing about running is that it can hold everything inside of it, which is when I started running and, and I think one of my one of my big interests as a writer and, and I think especially when I think about sort of female bodies is the idea that the body can be object and subject at the same time. And I think coming at running the way that I came at running, which is to say I came at running to win, I was I was pretty pretty good at running when I was a a kid and and I sort of quickly it just it felt so good to to win and and I was this sort of it it turned me into this thing that I'm quite I have often to my detriment been quite interested in which is a shiny object um that Mm -hmm. that other people can sort of feel good about and so I didn't I didn't have a lot of subjectivity as a runner um I just but I, but I liked the power I got as a shiny object, as someone who ran fast and was in the newspaper and got lots of, uh, you know, patches on my back, on my jacket or whatever. Um, but, but, but the thing about being an object is you, you, you never have any power. You just don't know that in the beginning. And so I slowly sort of re established my relationship to running as a subject, right? As something that I did as some as a place where I had agency, where I had power, where I had strength. And I think a word I think about a lot with running and, and I think, you know, 
too, it's, it's absolutely, you can just sort of press all of this over into writing, which is to say that, that all of the joy, all of the pleasure, all of the power that I get from running comes from it as practice, right? It comes from it as something that I do most every day. All of the joy lives there. All of the goodness lives there. If and when I run a race, it's always sort of like anticlimactic by comparison um, because there's all these people. (laughs) It's like, that's not... um, and so, yeah, I think I think the sort of the other version of this is that so I have this this uh, this workout that I'm obsessed with that I that I probably talk about too much, um, and 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 this will also out how that essay was a little bit of a lie, which is to say that I do still use a watch sometimes. Um, <laughs> I thought that was I'm... interesting that that <laughs> someone so competitive was watchless. <laughs> I'm watchless during periods when it gets really bad, but but I do still sometimes train for marathons. Um, and my favorite marathon training is my favorite marathon training day is I forget what it's called. It's called Big Workout, capital B, capital W, on my like running app. And the, the workout is three mile sprints, 40 minutes, and then three other mile sprints. And so by the time you do like- horrible. <laughs> it's incredible. It's like my favorite thing. So, but, but the important thing here is you do the three mile sprints and that is like my heaven, right? Because it's just like, it is so hard. You almost puke, but also you know when it will end and you can like muscle your way through it. Mm. And then you also know you have three miles on the other end. But the middle is one of the hardest- bits of training I do the entire time, which is to say it is not a distance. So you can't muscle through it. Like you have to run 40 minutes. You know, you have those sprints on the other end. So you have to reserve some level of energy, even though it's like at this weird pace, that's not, that doesn't feel fast, but doesn't feel slow. And so you have to like do this thing with your body where instead of leaning forward and just muscling through, you just have to be inside of this experience and kind of roll. And that is again, like physically uncomfortable to me. And that physical discomfort to me is one of the most sort of instructive 40 minutes of my life in terms of like, I think for a long time that I thought that life was just like sprinting to these marker points. And what they once I hit them, I would sort of get to another side in which things would be okay or something. I, I don't know what I thought, but I thought that I could sort of muscle my way to some other side. But, but I think much more what I think life is, is that 40 minutes, right? Which is just settling into this space of like, there is some mild discomfort, but actually the things that is most uncomfortable is that you just have to sort of continue to be yourself. Mm. Um, And I think, I, I, I do think that that is a lot of what flight is about, is that there is no sort of right choice among all of these people and there is no sort of great moment of revelation there is some a lot of sort of pettiness and discomfort but there's also a lot of love and joy and then every once in a while you get this like little tiny bit of grace that if you don't acknowledge it as grace because it didn't change your life it's just going to disappear so you might as well just kind of sit there and acknowledge it and then it'll pass and then you can sort of hope that you'll get another one. <laughs> mm. 
That's beautiful. I, uh, I there's so much in that description of of running in that particular pattern and and workout and and how you how you think of it structurally that resonates for me. Um, I have run all my life and then managed to injure myself about a month before the beginning of COVID, which means oh. I I deprived myself of my one therapy uh, for almost two and a half years um but i'm oh back God. running running again but it's so slow and so so different than it was before that for me finding it to be that practice that has small moments of grace of living inside yourself and and getting to experience the the beauty of the world around you and a moment uncluttered by the rest of of life i've i've started to take some joy from those Oh my God, I'm so I'm so happy for you, but I I I feel like we need to talk more often. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I know I, I, I know that you can you understand exactly what that means. <laughs> yeah, I just oh oh yeah. I mean, what did you? Can I ask you what did you do? What did you do? I t I picked up swimming, which I had never I I had never done seriously, but we have an incredible swimming pool where I work, and so I started very slowly but surely um, swimming, and now I now I swim a lot too, which is its own kind of utterly immersive activity. Yeah, yeah. God, that's so. I mean, I'm so glad you're on the other side. <laughs> Me too. I'm. I'm hopeful. Yeah. We'll. We'll see. I'm going to run the, the sort of Thanksgiving Day race uh, that that I used to do all the time. And the sad part, though, and this again connects to your essay, is that I used to like just sort of the joy later on in the day was sort of checking my my standings in the race yeah. and seeing where I had finished and how it compared to past years. And it's just going to be so like Maybe embarrassingly that. different, but yet I'm, I'm thrilled that I'll be actually, actually running it this year. Yeah. But don't, I mean, I will also say like, I find that really instructive too right like I, I i sort of i'm i'm really grateful to have something where for a for a while people told me i was great and then i had to sort of stomach the fact that actually i'm pretty average mm. right just in terms of like making things right because then because i've already felt that sort of devastation of and it's, it's you know I'm not devastated now but I was you know like I've already felt that devastation of thinking you're you're one you're one thing and 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 real thinking you're capable of one thing and then actually realizing no you're 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 not you know um and and but then realizing that it's fine you know realizing mm -hmm. that like you thought you, you thought you did this thing because you were really good but actually you do this thing because you love it. Um, and I think that, you know, being a writer is such a weird <laughs> thing to do. And like when and how, I think I'm still kind of casting about for someone to like give me a sticker that says, no, no, you're not wasting your life. It's mm -hmm. okay to keep doing this. But like no one's ever going to give you that sticker. You just have to keep doing it if you really love it, you know? And I think because... I lost my chance for a sticker so early with running. I think it's really useful for me when I start sort of 
casting about for the publishing or whatever universe to say, no, no, it's, it's okay. You can, you can keep wasting your family's time <laughs> doing this thing. <laughs> Um, before I let you go, Lynn, I'm I'm dying to know what you've been reading and loving <laughs> recently. Would you share some of your your recent favorite books? Yeah, I actually feel like just because I said that thing about like what can fiction hold outside of space and time, it feels worth saying that two books that I actually reviewed this year that I just sort of can't stop thinking about. And so I'm just going to name them, even though they uh, are Sheila Hetty's Pure Color and Namwali Serpel's um, The Furrows, um, which I just, you know, every once in a while, I feel like there's, I actually love a lot of books. <laughs> I just, I just finished Foster by Claire Keegan, which is, which is almost the opposite of those two books, which is to say those first two books, I think just got me so excited because it was like, oh no, no, books can also be this, right? And, and I think that's always exciting when I read a book that feels like it's helping me reconsider what books can be. And then I think the cool thing about Foster is she almost does it from the opposite angle, which is to say there is nothing sort of structurally or content wise unexpected about that book. And yet Claire Keegan's sentences and specificity and sort of sensitivity to the world around her characters makes everything that should feel old feel shockingly new. Hmm. And so I think maybe those three are sort of coming at newness from different angles. And one more, just because I'm greedy, is I'm <laughs> also reading very slowly because the language is just like sort of stopping my heart this book called some of them will carry me by giada scotolaro and it's short stories really short stories but i just sort of continually find myself gasping at the sentences and that that feels like a very good sign <laughs> well it's it's never selfish to give lots of book recommendations and i haven't i haven't read any of these i'm embarrassed oh to say so i have some i have some great reading to come and i'm sure listeners will be excited to i think you're the the second person to have sheila hetty's pure color as one of their recommendations and i hear marvelous things about the furrows a couple of people have said that's their favorite book of the year yeah, I think it's, I mean, I published a book this year and I think it's my favorite book of the year. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Lynn, thank you so much for just a wonderful and, and wide ranging conversation. I can't wait for people to get a chance to run out and buy Flight. Uh, you, you already have tons of fans and you're only going to have more after this one. And I'm grateful for the book and grateful for our conversation. Well, thank you. I'm so, I'm so grateful to you. <laughs> so, and I'm so excited you're running. Oh, thanks and... so much. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great rest of your day. You too, Lynn. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for me for now. My great thanks to Lynn Steger-Strong, who was as smart and funny and thoughtful as all of her books would suggest. I promise to model her theory of running as practice as I continue to bang out slow miles. You can order her extraordinary novel, Flight, with a link on the website burnedbybooks.com, where you'll find Lynn's book recommendations and all of our previous episodes. We have some marvelous interviews coming up in the weeks before the new year. But until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.